You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia, and I'm assisted behind the scenes by my sound engineer, Justin Ward. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art, and about how everyone is wrong apart from us. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest this week is Visa Khan Virasamy. Visa Khan, or Visa, as he's often known to his friends, is joining us from Singapore. He is um, a writer, podcaster, organizer of meetups, YouTuber. Sorry, you're you're not really a podcaster. I hate to insult you. You're a YouTuber. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, I, I don't have a podcast of my own, but I do like to go on other people's podcasts. So, yes. Yeah. And uh, and he's the author of a, of a short booklet called Friendly Ambitious Nerd. Yep. Um, he's also an extremely prolific Twitter user. Um, I mean, you use Twitter to the extent that it is it is almost like a performance art, I would say. <laughs> yeah. Um, a vast number of threads. Yes. Um, and mostly on, they are very rarely or I think almost never political, political or politically, uh, well, they sometimes have political implications, but they're not polemical. You don't usually quote tweet, you don't dunk on people, and you don't get into fights. They are nerdy. And I think we'll come back to the idea of what it means to be a nerd and what the nerd approach to life is um, later in the podcast. Welcome, Visa. Hi, Iona. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Visa was actually one of the first people that I originally invited on the podcast. But at that time, um, you, I think, didn't yet have a proper mic. I yeah. didn't have um, the the absolutely lovely Justin Ward, my sound engineer, to help me. And I was also living in Bombay. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Wi-Fi was a little bit tricky. So we had many technical issues. And in the end, I didn't release the the podcast because the sound quality was uh, was too poor. Yeah. Um, but not because we didn't have a wonderful conversation on that occasion. Yes. So I've been really looking forward to having you back again. I'm sorry it's been so long. Um, I just blame my own disorganization. No worries. <laughs> uh, let me start with... The three elements of your book, and let's take mm-hmm. them in, in order. Mm. The first thing is you have a lot of advice uh, for people on how to use social media effectively yeah. uh, so as to make real life, both online and real life friends. And you describe this as one of your greatest talents. In yeah. fact, you say it's your, at one point you say it's your only move is <laughs> yeah. make a friend. Right. It's my wife's <laughs> um, joke, but it's true. <laughs> so, um, can you tell me what you think people are doing wrong or what opportunities they are missing and how you use how you use social media and real life to make friends, what your strategies are? 
Right. So I would start by saying, I guess, a bit of background about myself. So I, I kind of grew up on the internet. So before I had an internet connection, I used to be a, a library nerd. I used to go to the library every week. Uh, when I was a kid, my mom would bring me and eventually I would go by myself. And I just loved, um, you know, every time I would go to the library, I would just pick random books. And, and every book is like this whole universe of new things, especially when you're, when you're a child. It's like, you know, um, ancient Egypt and, and dinosaurs and, and space travel. And there's just all these things to learn. And I was so kind of um, in love with that. And it was a very, it was a very formative part of my early life. And so I always kind of had that that um, perspective, I guess. Like I and I kind of erroneously assumed that um, everyone else would enjoy that the same way I did. And so when I first got online, I remember thinking, "Oh wow, this is like this is like a library, but you can you can write directly to it." So you can have your own web page, you can write your own blog posts, and you can communi communicate with other people. And I, I kind of brought that ethos with me. And so I've always kind of, uh, I've had a certain reverence, I think, for words and writing and blog posts and books. And, and I was always very eager to communicate with other people. And it didn't take very long for me to discover that, uh, you know, when I would go on forums and stuff, that people would be quite uh, antagonistic. There would be people fighting, arguing, calling each other names, which I, I even participated in it for quite some time, I think, because I, I mean, I was just kind of um, copying what I saw other people do. And I remember I did have one experience. I write about this in my book. I had one experience on a video game forum where, I didn't know that people were joking about something and I pretended that I also was involved in something that I wasn't. And it was very obvious to everyone else that here's some dumb kid kind of lying and pretending to, to know what's going on when he doesn't. And uh, they all laughed at me and it was kind of uh, embarrassing. And I was determined to never let that uh, happen again. So I was very... So ever since then, I think I've always gone to online spaces with the intent of trying to be a useful member of every community that I'm in and trying to make friends, trying to, yeah, I, I've, I've always had that, that kind of impulse. And, you know, um, further along a little bit, I was involved in my local music scene, playing in a band. And, you know, when I first joined it, it felt like such a, such a rush. It was so, you know, so in I'm, I'm from Singapore and the general stereotype of Singaporeans, even both within and without, is that, you know, it's so sterile, it's so boring, it's so cold. Uh, not literally, the temperature is hot, but like, um, you know, just the sense that the people are kind of robotic. And in the local music scene, it was the opposite of that. Like, it was really passionate and, and energetic and warm. And and so I was very eager. I felt, I felt at home amongst those people. But uh, as I spend more time amongst them and, you know, hanging out on the, the music forums and stuff, it's, just, it's kind of the same story everywhere. It's like there's, there's petty infighting and there's drama and there's people arguing and getting into personal attacks and all that stuff. And I was, I remember being really sad and angry and upset. Like, like we here we have this thing that's like really precious and valuable to us and we seem to be squandering it. And yeah, so it's just been a lifelong thing for me to to kind of try and 
understand community spaces, understand online spaces, understand what it is that makes things um, pleasant and positive and and life affirming, nourishing, right? And what and how do these things break down? And is it possible for us to to kind of stave off the the bad and and enjoy the good, right? And so I I bring the energy with me on just everywhere I go on my personal blog on. I used to post on Reddit quite a bit and it, eventually Twitter was kind of the place where I seemed to have found um, the best audience or the best scene, the best set of friends. And yeah, you know, we have common interests. We, we geek out about a bunch of stuff. We, we talk about a bunch of things, but uh, every so often, you know, there'll be some kind of some, you know, maybe it's politics, maybe it's, it's some other event or some, something happens and people get swept up in, in uh, anger and frustration. And, and I have recurringly found myself in, the, in this sort of, I guess, self-appointed role of like a, like a mediator. Uh, one of my, one of, a, a term that someone once used to make fun of me back in the day that I actually really like was uh, someone once called me a mosh pit medic. So a mosh pit is like, you know, in a, in a live music setting, particularly, you know, hard rock, metal, heavy music, people literally go into, there's, there's like a pit. I mean, people just like smash into each other and get a bit violent and roughhousey to, to enjoy the music. And it can, you know, it's kind of, there's, there's a spectrum, right? A little bit of roughhousing is fine, but some people get really violent and people get pushed over and people get hurt. And I was always, you know, if I saw anybody getting hurt, I would be really quick to try and jump in and pull them out. And someone was like, aha, Visa, the mosh pit medic. And at the time, I felt bad about it. But now that I look back, I'm like, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, it's such a, it's, it's a, it's a good thing to do to make sure that people are, you know, at least comfortable and safe enough that they can continue having fun. Because the thing that I keep seeing happening is, you know, you have, you have people saying things like, oh, you know, you shouldn't need, um, you know, there's, there's this whole, you know, outside of the context of, of this, it's like, in the broader sense, there's all these conversations about safe spaces and trigger warnings and, um, you know, the right, some people feel that if somebody else says something offensive, then that should be, uh, something should be done about that, right? That which, which brings us to conversations about censorship and, and what, what does it mean to, to maintain a space that, that a, lot, a lot of people can participate in? And, you know, I can talk about any of those things for hours, but... Um, yeah, you know, there, there's there's a spectrum there, and I think people tend to get polarized into the extremes where it's either people tend to go with either. And when I say people tend to, I guess it's it's not everybody, but it's like the loudest voices. The loudest voices tend to be polarized. So the loudest voices tend to be either it should be a free for all with no censorship, no no regulations. I should be able to insult anybody at any time because we're just talking about ideas. And at the other end of the spectrum, you have people who are like. Uh, you know, other people should be, con- their speech should be controlled so that, you know, I, I feel safe in the public comments, which again, it's, uh, you know, I understand, it, I understand the premise of both of those perspectives, but um, it is necessary to find some, I believe it's necessary to find some kind of compromise that we can have a public comments that is, uh, you know, usable for everyone. And, um, yeah, you know, I've been talking for quite a while now, but like, uh, it's this, these are the things that I care about a lot. And I, I, I don't think they are easy answers, but I think, um, the more individuals we have who try to make an effort to be fair to people and, and 
kind of uh, shepherd the conversations or host the conversations, I think that is a net positive for everyone involved. Mm, thank you. So what do you mean by by um, a public comment section that's usable and what do you mean by shepherding the conversation? Could you say right. a bit more about that? Right. So, um, you know, there are many, many layers and and kind of... Uh, like one of, one of the one of the tragic things that happens on the internet is that every kind of uh, things get what's the right word to use decontextualized or, or stripped of their context or so things this I think some people call it like a context collapse right and we understand intuitively in in um, in real life in physical space meat space right we get that you know the rules for like your house party, who you invite into your home, into your bedroom, into your dining dining table, right? Who you bring to your dinner table. Uh, the rules there are different than, you know, how you you operate in uh, a public space, like uh, in a in a mall or in a diner. And uh, we we have that understanding quite intuitively. But on online, so let's just talk about Twitter, for example. Uh, different people have different assumptions about what the space they are inhabiting in is. So, you know, uh, when I say public comments, I'm talking about kind of the digital sense of what like the the public square is like or like the village square. So it's, um, and even that is com- complicated by the fact that, you know, the, the digital public commons is international. And so there are people with different cultural backgrounds and different assumptions and, and all kinds of things like that. And there's people who are anonymous, so that, that complicates things. But um, basically, uh, I, I think it's I think it, it's very important that there exists some kind of public comments. And my context for this is again like when I was when I was a young boy or like a young teenager. I remember I didn't really have a lot of great. Um, kind of um, older brother, older sister kind of figures in my life. Like, I mean, I had my family, but, you know, I think it's it's important for people to be a part of a broader community. And for me, I got a lot of that from um, internet strangers, really. And, you know, I think there was once kind of this, uh, this like maybe 20 years, 15 years ago or so, there used to be the sense that, oh, you should be really careful about internet strangers. Don't tell anybody anything about yourself blah 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 oh yes i remember that i always completely disregarded that (laughs) i mean don't don't give them your pin number um, but your or your address um but apart from that yeah the 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 public comments is a space that you can go and you can you know so there are there are risks involved right there are you you might get uh, stalkers or you might get creepy people and stuff like that but there is you know there's a risk and reward to participating in the public comments and one of the things that I'm passionate about is I feel that a healthy robust uh, public comments that is kind of um, tended to by uh, uh, private actors and you know the words the words private and public can get quite complicated in in this usage because private as in private citizen right so we need i believe that we need individual free private citizens 
to take some degree of ownership for the state of the public commons. And when I say the public commons, I mean just just the internet in general. So not necessarily just on Twitter. I mean, it always gets complicated because, you know, when you're using Twitter, for example, you are technically beholden to the terms and services of um, Twitter Corporation, right? And they are headquartered in San Francisco, in the US. And there's just all of that layers and layers of that stuff but i think even so broadly i think people understand that um there exists this ideal of that i mean that we all fail to live up to but there has been long this sense of this ideal of of the public intellectual and even calling it an intellectual space kind of feels uh needlessly um like i'm narrowing it down too much but it's just this public space twitter youtube blogs um just anywhere reddit even just anywhere where people can publish their thoughts and ideas and other people can read them i do think that that is a very important part of um you know i I can get kind of grandiose about this and say that it's an important part of like our development as a species in terms of uh kind of the collective um, mind that we have like at, at, as, as mil- hundreds of millions of people, billions of people eventually. And um, yeah, it's just a lot. There, there's a tragedy of the commons in the public commons, which is that, you know, there are, there are bad actors. There are people who, you know, for whatever personal reasons, they might be traumatized or they might be having a bad day or they might have mental health issues or they might not. They might even just be, I mean, it's up. It's, it, we can debate this as well. Like, where do bad actors come from, and why are they behaving the way they do? But like, the the reality of bad actors is that they do exist, and that if we want to have a healthy public commons where anybody can participate and get value out of it, then we do have to deal with bad actors in some way, and it's we also have to worry about the fact that um, the easiest seeming solutions to bad actors in almost always have like these secondary effects that you know the cure can be worse than the disease like you know people want to get kind of um, heavy-handed about content moderation like sure you can try that but then very often those tools can be used by you know whatever whoever is controlling those tools and i don't mean to be conspiratorial about this but it's just kind of the nature of power right like whoever who wields the band hammer who wields the sensor's pen right it very often you know, i was just seeing on um, contrapoints twitter yesterday i think she mentioned a couple of days ago she pointed out that uh, what happens on youtube is that it's very easy for anybody talking about something bad to get flagged and banned even for talking about that bad stuff because it's such a blunt instrument you just get reported and so if like you're talking about you know bullying like people can say oh this is a video about bullying um you know something skips here something skips there and the video gets blocked or banned and for people who are you know kind of serious content producers who might be trying to make a living through ads or whatever like that's that's kind of um it it makes their life more difficult and yeah, it's just there's this whole game, there's this huge game going on and a lot of people don't take it super seriously, which is their right. You know, it's not fair to expect every single person to be like a full-time content community manager slash content moderator and stuff like that. But but I care. I care a lot about these things because I remember what it was like to be a, a young person who felt cut off from the world and how 
the the public comments that I had access to shaped my development in a in an important way. And you know, it, it's re- it, I can get very profound about this because it's really for me, it's like you know the kindness of strangers who I've never met and have may not ever meet whatever like just knowing that good people are out there who exist and who are willing to talk to me and take me seriously and all those things like that really i would say it it influenced my will to live even and it influenced like my my relationship with with humanity as as a whole and and i do think that you know some people listening to this they might think ah that sounds cheesy or that sounds you know exaggerated or something which is which is fine for people to think but like for the people for whom this is their only lifeline, like that really makes a big difference. And even we don't even have to get so grandiose about it because, you know, uh, I, I would say super broadly, like we know that technology allows us to connect with people more easily than ever before. You know, we're we right now we are on a call across time zones and and stuff like that and once upon a time doing an international phone call would have been prohibitively expensive and now it's it's basically kind of free so we have all this technology that allows us to connect with each other and yet we also know that people are reporting kind of um, record levels of loneliness and isolation and you know like um, and that translates very directly to things like suicide rates but it shouldn't be that we have to see suicide rates go up before we realize that oh shit you know like uh people feeling isolated and disconnected and disenfranchised is a problem because it is it's like it's your quality of life that's at stake and so um where we're talking about public comments yeah i believe that a healthy flourishing public comments is something that can exist and if it does exist it gives people kind of a a place that they can plug into that they can connect to find other people and and yeah it's a source of meaning it's a source of of community and communion it's all the things that that people have been saying is has been like missing from from modernity and yeah so there's just this i think there's this broad assumption that the public comments is necessarily kind of you know like a like if you think of like a public park that has been kind of uh, taken over by I don't know like uh, gang gang members and and drug users and stuff like that and there's just a sense of oh you know that park like don't go there it's dangerous and stuff like that it doesn't have to be you know it just requires that more and more people step up and and get involved and kind of look out for each other and yeah so that is I, I could even say that it's kind of my primary life goal slash passion which is to to improve the state of public education globally to improve the state of public comments public discourse right so and and ideally it's some i i believe that it should be international because it can be international and that kind of allows us to to transcend certain boundaries about uh the constraints of of nations nation states race religion all those things and yeah so uh, and so that's a very big, grand kind of grand scale thing. But you know, and you know, I'm not going to be able to to snap my fingers and improve the public comments overnight. But what I think we can do is we can, and and what I try to do personally, and I try to encourage other people to do the same, is that we each kind of um, are stewards of the little space around us, and you know, it kind of it rhymes with some of like some older quotes about more you know i think 
was it Gandhi who said something like, uh, you know, you don't try to change the world, you try to change yourself or something like that. It's just, there, there are a whole bunch of quotes like this, like this sense of, you know, put your own house in order before you try to put the world in order and, and focus on what you can control over what you can't control. And yeah, I have, and I have, I have tried this and I have found that, um, you know, the first few years that I was doing it, it was very kind of thankless and unproductive work. But eventually over time, I made, I, you know, some people noticed what I was doing and they, they, they liked what I was doing and they wanted to get involved. And when I say get involved, I don't mean like that, you know, we started a company or anything kind of grandiose like that. It's really just a few people kind of keeping tabs on each other loosely, like acquaint- being acquaintances, being friendly acquaintances online, on Twitter and stuff, looking out for each other, talking with each other. And when a few people are doing that, and I, you know, I have a Twitter thread about this, of course, which is that um, a small group of people who are public-facing, who are producing work for each other, but make it available publicly, they can create a scene which means that you know two people are talking to each other in public and then an audience can naturally kind of form around them and then those people are free to make friends with each other and then you have this whole network of people in a space and they have now kind of i mean you could say that they've 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 um quote unquote colonized it or or settled in it or whatever however you want to frame it but um yeah and and once you have that that kind of network it becomes this this valuable precious thing that other people can join in and participate in and it can grow. And yeah, I think the more people we have doing this sort of thing actively, uh, we can really start to, to, to change perceptions about what the public comments can be. And, you know, it can, I, I think we will, we may live to see the day that people kind of just assume that the public comments, it has, I don't know. I, I, I'm idealistic. I want to hope and believe that it's possible that we can eventually get to a point where the public in general, and when I say the public, I mean, again, like the world, right? Like uh, enough people in the world care about the value of public common spaces and, you know, participate enough to kind of, uh, I, don't wanna, I don't even want to say enforce. It's more of like nudge, right? Like nudging each other to be sensible and to be fair and to be kind. If enough of us do that, uh, we can really kind of not have more productive conversations because I get really frustrated when we see what could have been interesting conversations or productive conversations get derailed by personal attacks and, and people getting angry and upset. And yeah, I, I find that very unproductive and it's kind of wasteful. And so I wrote Friendly Ambitious Nut partially to 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 find people who are interested in these ideas and may not have thought about it as much as I have and kind of give them a framework for thinking about how they can apply it in their own lives. So it's kind of, you know, if I were to not talk about the internet at all, it, it, it would be like the thing I would suggest that somebody who wants to be a friendly, ambitious nerd should do would be to host dinner parties, like to be very kind. I mean, we can't do it right now because of COVID, but like uh, generally speaking, uh, yeah, try and find people that you respect and admire and kind of take some initiative and encourage them to to hang out and be a bit deliberate about it and ask people questions and, and get them to get to know each other. And, you know, if, if everything goes well, um, you get people kind of bonding, building relationships. I've even had I've even had friends from one of my old groups who start dating, and there's at least like one couple that's going to get married. And yeah, you know, you just once you've witnessed this from the inside, it's like 
this is this to me this is like the meaning of life even right and i've been i've been recently doing some reading about how progress has happened in the past and it's pretty crazy you know if uh, if you take like um Einstein and uh, Max Planck, the guy who did who discovered Planck length. Like very often when you look up scientists, if you look up their Wikipedia pages or you look up the plaques and statues that they have of these people, it's always implied that these people are like, you know, staggering individual geniuses. But if you actually dig into the details and you read like their correspondences and stuff, it's almost always the case that none of these people were working in isolation. They were always, you know, they would have a scene. They would have other people that they hang out, hung out with. So like Max Planck and his wife used to host dinner parties and people like Einstein would come and they would play music and they would chat about life. And they would be trying to kind of, you know, impress each other as as friends and peers and, and trying to uh, just do what they feel is great work. And yeah, over and over again, I find that when you study the history of, uh, you know, inventions and the history of of like human progress, it it very seldom happens because like one or two people were working in isolation. It very often happens because there was some kind of scene. You know, there was like a the Baghdad House of Wisdom in the eight hundreds, and there was like a, the Indian. You know, when when you look back to when India like invented zero, right, and and they did all of those uh, scientific advancements, it it's all clustered around scenes, scenes of you know like several dozen people to maybe a few hundred people. You know, look at like um, Vienna in the eighteen hundreds, right, or Florence when um, and when Da Vinci and friends were painting and stuff like it's 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 amazing when you really kind of examine it. All of the great things that humanity has done as a species over hundreds of years it's not evenly distributed it's very much kind of uh, it's very lumpy it happens a lot in like it's disproportionately boils down to like a handful of people who are who create a, a environment amongst themselves that is conducive to you know, high openness, high creativity. The people challenge each other in a productive way and and support each other. Even even if they are like rivals, it's a productive rivalry. And yeah, I once you do a bunch of reading about this, it starts to really get like mind blowing. It's like why aren't we talking about this all the time? Because we know that we live in a world that needs kind of um, you know, this like climate problems and there's, there's energy problems there's all kinds of big major problems right that need solving and solving big problems requires these kind of um, grand efforts and grand efforts happen in scenes and we don't seem to have like a, a publicly shared a public shared understanding of how scenes work because if we really did understand them we would be you know making much more of an effort collectively to have great scenes and great public comments and all of those things. And yeah, so this is this is my jam. This is stuff I think about every day and try to figure out how to help more people get think get more people thinking about these things so that we can have better scenes and better public comments. Thank you. I have I have a few thoughts that I'd like to say in response to that. Um, mm-hmm. before I there's something else I want to ask you which is slightly related. Um, but I think some of the things are, well, the first thing is that when I was growing up, and you mentioned that when you were growing up, you were told, be careful what you say on the internet to strangers. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember, uh, you know, that there was, there was definitely a fear 
of interacting, public interactions with strangers. I mean, not very, not very brief. I'm not talking about brief encounters uh, where you might say hello to somebody um, or you might get chatting to them at a bus stop or at the shops or something, um, which is something I think we don't, we also don't do enough of. Um, yes. But there was a, there was a general um, fear that out there are a world of unpredictable people, many of whom might be threatening, harmful, or dangerous. And I think that the um, uh, internet technologies have taken away a lot of my fear in that regard. So I still think that we should obviously um, exercise normal caution. Be careful if you're um, in a more dangerous place on your own at night. Uh, be wary of confiding financial details to people or giving your address out publicly. Um, but nevertheless, it's actually quite amazing the levels of trust people have. So for example, when I was growing up, I was always told, get don't get into strange people's cars. And yeah. now, of course, I go online, I book Uber, and uh, I go on the internet to get some stranger to come and pick me up in his car. It's, al it's almost always a man. Uh, and drive me where I need to go. Of course, they are under the aegis of Uber, so I have a certain I have a certain guarantee that these people will be trustworthy. Right. But it's not a complete guarantee. These are yeah. these are not professional taxi drivers. These are still ordinary people who've who've um, been hired as freelance as basically freelancers for Uber. Um, yeah. Also, you know, when I want to stay somewhere. Um, I go online. I look for an Airbnb, and that means that, in effect, most of those Air most of the Airbnbs that I've stayed in have been rooms in people's homes. So I'm going right. to stay in the home of somebody whom I also I I don't know. Um, and when I was living in Argentina, I, I was also a member for a while of a an organization, a kind of supper club. I can't rem remember exactly what they were called, unfortunately, because I would love to recommend them to people. And I know that they also operate in the US as well. Um, but I haven't been able to remember the name. But yes. what they do is you can register to host dinner parties. Um, nice. And people will pay you a small amount less than you would pay at a restaurant and bring their own wine. And you nice. all sit at one table together. And usually, unlike a restaurant, you know, it's just once a week you're hosting the party and you can have five people, let's say, at your home. Um, but it's complete strangers who sign up through the app to come to your nice. place for dinner. And then in exchange, you can go for free to somebody else's place. And nice. uh, Or you can choose um, to just be a host and make a little bit of extra cash by each week hosting this dinner party. It, um, and I had some just lovely, lovely experiences with that. Now, the reason why this is safe, I think, also touches on something else that I was, that your comments made me think about when you were talking about the internet as being this kind of public resource of knowledge, mm -hmm. like a kind of public library but not just yeah. a passive um, reference uh, space, but 
a library that we are creating together. And yes. so the reason these things, the Supper Club, Uber, B&B, are safe, of course, is because I can see what other people have said about the hosts, the drivers, yeah. etc. I can see other people's ratings. So yes. what I'm relying on there is the wisdom, is what's called the wisdom of crowds. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I'm sure you're familiar with this, but I'm in yeah. case anyone isn't, I'm going to tell the little story about that, the classic story that illustrates this. And I think was it was this event that led the philosopher who coined this term, whose name I now have forgotten, but I'll look it up and try to put it in the show notes. Um, this, I, I, so I believe it was a, an 18th century um, Enlightenment philosopher who first coined this concept, the wisdom of crowds. And what he discovered was he went to a... Um, an event at a fairground where you could bet money on the weight of an ox. So this ox was brought out, everybody was standing around taking a good look at the ox, and then people wrote down their best estimations of how much the ox weighed. How many pounds right. did that ox weigh? Um, and they put their little slips of paper, you know, into a hat or whatever, um, right. And at the end of the day, after the market was at the close of the market, the ox was weighed, and whoever had come closest to the weight uh, won a prize. Right. Won a cash prize. I think they also won the ox. The ox was then butchered and they were given the meat. And of course, people's individual guesses varied enormously. And some people were very far off in their guesses, whereas some people were were very close in their guesses. Um, so a professional butcher uh, won it on one occasion because he was, of course, very sure. used to looking at oxes and, and then weighing them and sizing up the weight. Um, but the, the really striking thing this guy discovered is that when you averaged out everybody's guesses, you came incredibly close to the true weight of the ox. Um, right. So... People's guesses were just a couple of pounds off in this ox who weighed, obviously, hundreds of pounds, like, a, you know, a thousand pounds or something. Um, mm -hmm. And that was a, a pretty consistent result, that individual yeah. guesses might be very wrong, but the average guess was extremely close to the truth. Right. So when you have enough people um, and enough normal quote-unquote people, so um, enough non-outliers making guesses, you can actually come to a very uh, close estimation of, of the truth of what's going on. And that, I think, is one way in which uh, you can use the internet. So the, the, the issue with the internet is that the people who are the outliers on the extremes um, in a sense, those who are saying the ox is really light and those who are saying the ox is really heavy, yeah. we pay much more attention to those voices. They stand out, yes. they're more salient. Yes. But the answer to me is not censorship. It's not to exclude extreme voices. It's to keep adding more and more moderate voices to create yeah. this wisdom of the, achieve this wisdom of the crowds, wisdom of crowds effect. Yeah. So it's also like um, wisdom of the commons, 
I think it's called the wisdom of the commons, not the wisdom of crowds. So when you talked about, for example, the public park, and mm -hmm. you said, if you have a public park in your neighborhood, so let's imagine the internet is a public park. Right. Um, but you don't want to go to the public park because there are um, people there are doing drugs, um, littering, um, there are kind of, there are people there who are violent and threatening, etc. So I remember when New York public parks, for example, used to be very dangerous. There were certain mm -hmm. parks that were just no go. Right. So you have some options. You can close the park, and then nobody right. has a park to go to. Mm -hmm. You can try to stop people from going to the park, but that inevitably means that you will stop some people who would really benefit from the park and who have done nothing wrong. Yeah. on the basis of your suspicion of them. So you right. can profile, say, park goers yeah. and say, you look a bit dodgy, you're not allowed in. Right. Um, and, or you can encourage everybody to go to the park. And once enough yes. normal people are at the park, the park is yeah. no longer scary. So yeah. I, I think that... Um, I think that censorship is both unfair to people who are not assholes, yeah. and also it, when you exclude assholes from this kind of public space, you also prevent them from having the cho chance to benefit. Um, yeah. Those people need to be not excluded. They need to be in there and also exposed. What you need to do yeah. is just up the sensible voices. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Sorry, that was a long speech from the floor. Um. Yeah, I agree. and I think I think the the other interesting thing is that um, so the 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 cool thing about the internet, I think, and about being individuals and whatnot, is that it's not just one big park. It's really it's a near infinite set of kind of overlapping groups. And I mean, I don't know if the the, the physical space metaphor still holds, but it's like. You you don't necessarily need to so if if you can't get you know the entire public to descend upon a park all at once, what you could kind of do is organize a group of people to go and like there's there's certain safety in numbers that kind of thing, and yeah, it's it's there are all these alternate variations and alternate kind of um there are many many different paths you can take to try and create spaces that are. Uh, in some way kind of uh, that that fulfills your needs basically right that does the things that you want them to do and private individuals i think can can afford to to be more um discerning about who they want to invite into semi private spaces so it's like if you think about if you think about um you know like like your house, like your house is your is your own private personal space, and you have a lock on the door, and you you decide who's in and out, and then you have like the the common corridor area along your house. I mean, it depends on what kind of place you're living in, but like I think a lot of places there's there's like so in in my in my flat there's a common corridor in front of my house where you know um the 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 corridor area is in front of my neighbor's house as well. And you know, I I can technically sit in front of my house and 
hang out there if I feel like it. And my neighbor is free to do the same in front of his house. And like we can hear each other and we can have a conversation with each other if we want. And there, there are all these kind of uh, many, many configurations of things like this that is, you know, not entirely private, not entirely public. And, and there's a lot of magic that can happen in these spaces that are kind of complex and, and, and nuanced that I think a lot of people don't even explicitly think about very much because they're kind of, they, they're, they're kind of, um, I guess a lot of people think of them as like transitional spaces or, or like a, there's a word called liminal, which is used to describe this sort of thing, which is like a, like in between spaces. And mm. I think these in between liminal spaces are, are very valuable for, for trying to, to develop uh, just uh, any, any kind of common good, right? So if you think about like, so, you know, if you have a new neighbor and you want to make friends, like you don't necessarily need to go to their house or invite them into your house. You can have good conversations. You can kind of slowly, progressively have more and more extended conversations like at at your gates, right? In on, in front of your houses. And then once you've developed some familiarity and, and comfort, then you, you may want to invite each other over. And yeah, it's just being being deliberate about thinking about these things, I think is a very, it opens up possibilities that a lot of people don't realize exist. Like I think a lot of people feel that there aren't very many options because it's not obvious. And yeah, so I think it's, it's worth, um, I mean, like what you said about encouraging sensible and moderate voices like you people you'll, you'll seldom see there is this this selection bias where the people who are likeliest to you know leave a review these days uh, tend to be people who are complaining uh, who are up, upset like it's and and that there's that distortion in in the media right so uh if we're talking about public comments we have to talk about the media as well because the media is by far and when i say the media i don't mean like a specific news organization, but rather just the full phenomenon of like the ecosystem of all of the utterances and all of the the blogs and podcasts and videos and everything like that that whole shebang, right? Is um it it re- it kind of rewards the most extreme actors and mod like you very seldom get people or you know you, you do get moderate voices, but they tend to. There are fewer of them than uh, than the sorry. What am I trying to say? the The proportion of moderate voices to the proportion of actual moderate people is is smaller. Whereas, like uh, extreme voices are are always louder and disproportionately represented because they have more incentive to speak up whether because they're angry about something or they're upset. They have you know high strong feelings about things. And so it's it's a challenge for people who care about the public comments to to encourage more moderate voices to speak up and to share their stories. But it's very important work. Yeah, I think we both agree. Mm, mm. You talk about so in the I'm I'm still on the friend part of your your book, um, mm-hmm. and there there's a lot more that I could go into on this. Uh, you have a lot of. Um, wisdom in this book. And one thing actually that I have noticed about you personally, just a small digression is, so somebody asked recently, they I, um, they posted the question on Twitter, what is the smallest Twitter account you know of 
which has genuine fan accounts and people and a kind of strong group of devoted stands as, as I believe you young people mm-hmm. are now calling them um, mm-hmm. and immediately your account sprang to mind um, right. y- yours is the is the smallest it's not that small an account but it's the smallest Twitter account I know which has a really dedicated following of people who who define themselves partially define themselves as <laughs> specifically as fans of yours rather right. than just they're like-minded people who have similar political opinions or similar interests or or whatever yeah. it might be um there are many communities right. like that on right. twitter but these are people who are specifically see you as a as not a mentor or a guru i don't think you <laughs> set yourself up in that way at all um yeah. but just kind of enjoy your very specific quirky take on things and i think that what i'm reminded of when i'm reading um your account of what you're trying to do in the world and how you're trying to progress which we'll get onto in a moment because i want to go into the ambitious partner in a second um yeah. it reminds me in a sense of um accounts but um the kinds of things that famous people in business and tech write. So an account like um, uh, his, he's called Naval um, on Twitter. I'll leave details in the show notes so people can check it out because I think he's a very good example. These, I find those kinds of accounts very, very annoying because what they do is (laughs) it's, it's people who are already successful and they say, the secret of my success is X, Y, and Z. The secret is Buddhism, or every morning I'm meditating, or I have these specific thoughts and attitudes, or this is my approach, etc. Um, it's this kind of, um, in science, it's called harking, hypothesizing <laughs> after the results are known. <laughs> and in science, it's a big, big no-no. <laughs> um, because there's no control group. There could be a hundred other people who also meditated, also took up Buddhism, also, you know, agreed with all the same aphorisms and took the same approaches, but weren't successful. And you don't see those groups. So um, it's a phenomenon that uh, I think uh, someone told me, someone in business, a friend, a close friend of mine who's in business told me that um, in business, it's called getting high off your own exhaust fumes. Um, (laughs) so it's like, oh, it's the smell of these exhaust fumes. This is what caused my car to, to, (laughs) to drive me from one place to another. Um, and, uh, but you are completely different from that because you are in the course of trying to establish something. And so it's more like a kind of forecasting so we can see you trying things and saying, okay, this is what I'm going to try. And then we can see in real time whether those things are succeeding or not. So that's what I yeah. find specifically useful and different about your account and your approach to this. Thanks. <laughs> You're welcome. So my other question is, you said you talk about um, an entire shadow social world hiding in plain sight. I'm going to read a little passage here. There is an entire shadow world hiding in plain sight. Learning about this, I think, 
was more mind-boggling than learning about the scope and scale of the universe. It's like social dark matter. Most people don't see it, and many never will. Can you talk about what you mean by that? Right. So it's um, social dark matter. It's it's basically about all of the things that are implicit or unsaid. And, you know, I remember when I was a bit younger, I was kind of um, geeking out about the possibility of of trying to to map everything that, that everyone thinks and says and everything that is known. But then I came to realize over many conversations that there are... You know, it's it's kind of the observer participant problem, which is that there are things that you will only see or you will only experience because of how the world, particularly social reality, how other people respond to you. So if you know, if you are, let's say, a very aggressive and uh, threatening kind of person, and 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 most people feel just kind of instinctively feel that you seem to be a threatening presence then you will feel that that you know the world is a very defensive and standoffish kind of space and uh, one of the examples I, I point out in in that thread I remember there's this child photographer I can't remember his name but he's a young boy and he's this very cheerful cherubic kind of kid and all the photos he takes have people, you know, really smiling and 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 kind of being welcoming to him. And you get the sense that, you know, that must be the world that he inhabits. You know, everywhere he goes, people see this, this enthusiastic young child photographer and they kind of instinctively want to open up to him. And so different people end up having entirely different experiences of the same social reality. So, you know, even if you're experiencing the same city, if you're if if two different people go touristing in the same city, they may have radically different conclusions about what that city is like. But and they and the dark matter is that they will not know what the other person's experience is like because they cannot experience it directly. They can only kind of approximate it by having conversations with each other. And very often these conversations don't even happen because these people are in different groups, different and back, uh, you know, bubbles or whatever you want to call them. And I think being aware of this phenomenon gives you a certain intellectual humility, or just even just humility in general. Just knowing that everything that you know is kind of colored and contaminated to some degree by your experience and 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 how people respond to you. And so it's important, I think, to be at least somewhat open to the fact that someone else might have a very different experience of the same seemingly the same thing as you but again you can you can kind of go too far with this and you know there's this whole sense that oh everything is subjective and nothing is is that kind of thing but uh, broadly i find that getting people to consider that what they have experienced is not entirely representative is is itself kind of a, a big step for a lot of people to take and i've also found that people who appreciate this kind of um, in a in a in a healthy way they tend to be slower to judge people and they're more forgiving of mistakes and they're more willing to kind of have conversations where they question each other's question their own assumptions question each other's assumptions and i find that prioritizing building relationships with people who understand this uh, has 
improved my life a lot. It has kind of uh, helped me see new things and, and, and looked at things from different perspectives and so on. I would add to that that I think that um, we also underestimate the extent to which the same person can seem very different to different people. Oh, absolutely, um, yes. And we all know this about ourselves. I mean, I think we've all felt this about ourselves, that some mm -hmm. people clearly think that I am very shy and retiring or even introverted or antisocial. Um, right. And that's because for whatever reason, I just don't warm to them. Um, and I don't feel relaxed around them. And therefore, I'm not bubbly and extroverted right. around them. Whereas other people right. think, God, this woman will never shut up. I can't get a word in edgeways. <laughs> um, and right. that's because right. those people make me feel we gel better. And I and then I'm I'm much more forward and extroverted and daring, etc. Um, each yeah. person is like an, and it's not necessarily the fault of the person. It's also yeah. a matter of ecosystems. Um, yeah. So just as two different people's experience of the same place can be different, two different people's mm -hmm. experience of the same person can be different. And although yes. we experience this in ourselves, we often forget it when we're judging others. That's very true. Yeah, Our feeling is that person is X, Y, and Z. Um, and yeah. we don't think about how our experience of a person is always also influenced by who we are. Yes, very much so, yeah. So um, there's there's a lot more that I could talk about, we could talk about in this domain, but I'd like to go on to the second part of your tripartite structure in the book, yes. um, which is ambition. Um, you have a wonderful... Um, uh, uh, this is not from you, but you quote someone else. You make this wonderful quotation that it's not about trying to obtain prestige. Yeah. Um, and the person you quote says, if something is prestigious, I'm quoting from memory, so this might not be precise. If something is prestigious, you should avoid it because if yeah. it, it must suck. Because if it didn't, they wouldn't have made it. They wouldn't have tried to make it prestigious. Um, prestige <laughs> yeah. is a sort of bait. <laughs> yeah, yeah um, it is. It so can be. What does it mean mm -hmm. to you to be ambitious? In what way are you ambitious? Right. So I, I think it's very natural early on to the well, not. I mean, I'm in multiple minds about this, but I, I would say, um, you know, the purest ambitions I think you hear from children because they haven't yet been socialized into the dominant social order and they haven't yet developed a taste for things like prestige and, and accolades and, and stuff like that. But then, yeah, when by, I think by the time you become a teenager, it, it's very natural and normal to care about prestige, I think, because... It's it's we are social creatures and we care about what other people think, but uh, I think that's something that the healthy thing is to try and grow out of it, and because it can it can become a kind of constraint. It can become you know, and I, I receive a lot of uh, private messages from people who are struggling with this, and they are saying that you know I I I live in this city and I work in this industry and I feel like. Everybody around me thinks that, you know, I have to start a company and sell it for a lot of money or I have to, you know, achieve this, achieve that. And 
they lose they they lose a sense of um, who they were before they learned all of those things and what they care about underneath all of those things. And I would say that real ambition in in my frame is about getting a sense of what your deep personal values are before before all of those additional layers come into play. A, a deep, deep sense of what you really care about, what you really think is important and beautiful and valuable. And then f- try to express that in yourself and beyond yourself in the most um, to the fullest degree possible. So sometimes that comes out in terms of like, you know, oh, and there's nothing wrong with wanting to build a company or be a successful entrepreneur or be a famous author or any of those things. It's just that, are you doing it because you think that, you know, having a big number in your bank account or a big number of Twitter followers or a big number of any of those things, is it because you think that that number will satisfy you or you know that when you get this award or that award then you will you will have arrived in some sense or is it you know something that helps you to serve um your mission whatever your mission is and it it can be something trivial even right it can be something like you know you just really love food right and you want to you might not necessarily want to be a, a professional chef but you might want to try and uh, find a way to make the appreciation of food and sharing of food with others or however you want to you however you want to express that to try and make that a, a very central part of your life and and to do that as as much as you can i mean there's there's a bunch of there's a bunch of trade-offs and a bunch of, of nuance to get into but i would say that fundamentally i i would say ambition is about about wanting to to live your values yeah in that i mean you and you you can do that in a very kind of um small and narrow private personal way i don't think that's bad or wrong i think that's perfectly reasonable understandable respectable even right but um i would say you know it's one of those things where if you think something is really important and something is really kind of um valuable then in, in my frame, and, and I again, I, I want to be careful not to insist that other people adopt this. I think, I think it's very likely that different people have different kind of uh, tastes for these things. Different people have different... It's like, it's like how much do you like risk, right? Or how much do you like uh, spicy food or something? Different people just have different uh, propensities for how much they, they want to do these things. But uh, I, I would say that people who are ambitious in sense of in the sense of they they feel they have something to contribute they feel they have something to share with the world and they want to allow that to flourish at the highest level possible as much as possible i do think that they are the people who can really make a sizable positive difference in the world and so i write about this because i want to encourage those people and you know, it's the, the the thing about the three-way thing with uh, friendly, ambitious nerd is that ambition by itself can be kind of um, it can be dangerous in a sense, and I and I make the case that you kind of so you need when I say friendly, I don't just mean like in terms of um, you know being like sociable with people, but I also mean in a very deep sense like to be a friend to to humanity, right? To be a to, to have a love for people, 
like it, I think it's it's useful and good to have your ambition kind of intertwined with your love for people so that you know um when you're trying to whether it's you're a technologist or you're uh you're uh intellectual or you're, you're someone who's operating with something powerful um so in a sense ambition is about wanting in my frame is about wanting to accumulate power in a sense and saying that on its own can you know it has all these connotations and associations right because our general assumptions are that you know people who are power hungry uh you know they they have some they might have some issue or they might be you know trying to exploit people or they might be uh you know power corrupts and stuff like that and and so i think pe- a lot of good people kind of dampen their ambition this is this is a thing that that i'm concerned about i think i think people it's it's one of those like double tragedies where the people who don't give a shit about other people they are not deterred by you know criticisms of of people being uh, power hungry and stuff like that and so they they just choose to accumulate as much power as they can for for selfish purposes but what i'm trying to encourage is for people who have um I would say pro-social um, intent. People who know in their hearts that they are good people and they they have relationships with people who keep them in check and stuff like that. Those people, I feel, should step up and be leaders and and you know take on more responsibility and accumulate more power, precisely so that they can use that that leverage to make the world a better place for other people. Even even in very relatively narrow senses right like it could be running for office in your local communities like you know being a mayor or something like that like it, it doesn't necessarily mean that everyone should run for president or something like that but it's just the sense of i i do get i do feel that in my in my study and inquiry and and asking around of stuff there's this tragic thing that happens where people dampen their natural um, ambition. Like they know that they can make a positive difference in some sense, but they resist it because they don't want to come across as, um, they don't want to be kind of tarred with the same brush. And so again, the reason I talk about ambition here is to encourage people to do more. Hmm. It's interesting. I think that I... For me, I guess I I think there's a difference between personal ambition, um, i.e., you want you want to make a mark, um, you want to attain more power for yourself, i.e., power to do whatever it is that you you want to do, um, and I I think that for me that is a neutral quality, if not, um, it, and and quite a risky, um. Mm-hmm. Uh, quite a risky thing, especially because you are not the best judge of how pro-social your own intentions are. Um, And I think there's nothing more dangerous than an idealist who wants to change the world, feels that they um, could change the world for the better if only they had enough power and leverage. Um, That's a very, that's a very dangerous path. I understand why people are hesitant. The key thing is I guess there are two key things that help to counteract that. One is that it's not about um, you personally, it's about your idea or your project. 
Of course, mm-hmm. that's only a partial kind of um, that only partially helps to counteract this danger because your project could be, I don't know, having an ethnically pure Han Chinese Singapore, for example. Um, yeah, ex- yeah. Ex- exactly. Your project could be something that that I I would find objectively bad, but which you might be misguidedly convinced of the necessity or wisdom of, let's say. Um, right. And we can think of, of course, many examples of how, of how that kind of thing has gone wrong historically. Um, yeah. But because not uh, not all idealists are egotists. Also, some people right. want just want their project to be successful, and it's not really about them. But the project could still be bad. So alongside that, you need accountability, and yeah. that's where I think that open public spaces are important because it's very easy to surround yourself with like-minded people to get into a bubble to be just yes. surrounded by sycophants and right. to never get pushback um, yeah and that's what that's one thing that i think twitter is very good for somebody tweeted recently i uh today or yesterday i i saw someone tweet you could post on here the sky is blue, and someone would reply, this idiot has never heard of nighttime. (laughs) Um, And that is very annoying. It's like a kind of, it sometimes feels when you're on Twitter, like expressing yourself is slogging through mud. Um, It's like, you know, I went for a run this morning and it was extremely muddy in the forest. And mm-hmm. I think the run was twice as difficult as usual, because every step I was falling down into mud and then squelching right. my way back out of mud. And it just took more effort to pull my feet out of the mud at every step. Um, but at the same time, of course, I probably did. I probably got more cardiovascular benefits than I do when I'm running along the path and it's dry and smooth right. and easy. So. This kind of constant challenge to everything you say comes as a shock at first. It was a shock when I first went on Twitter and I said things that seemed to me completely sensible and incontrovertible. And I got huge pushback from people. (laughs) But it was, that's something that we have to work hard to keep in our lives if those who are ambitious. I personally am not terribly ambitious, but. Um, people who are ambitious, I think that is probably the most important thing to yeah, I agree. keep exposing yourself to the harshest critics. That's keep true. Yeah. Running the, keep running along the muddy paths. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Ha- you have a, um, some really nice advice for people as to how they can um, start to fulfill their ambitions. I think one of my favorite things you said is you can get addicted to intermediate steps that are genuinely helpful. Um, Can you say more about that? Uh, What was the context of that? Um, Oh, I think so. You said, for example, um, you used to be a picky eater and you decided you wanted to broaden your palate. So you started watching a lot of cookery and food videos and then right. you realize that you could just have stayed at that stage forever just watching cookery 
videos. Yeah. But it's yeah. there's always a a next step that takes a little bit more um requires a bit more oomph to get yourself out of that entropy well of of sticking with the yeah. easy but supposedly helpful thing. Yeah. So it's the 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 kind of antidote to that is that you really have to be thinking about outcomes. And so, you know, it's um, you kind of need to have deadlines, I guess. I, but I, I don't really think in terms of deadlines. I think I really just try to think in terms of outcomes, which is which is like, um, you know, like so even right now I'm working on my second book and it is I have been kind of stuck in, in editing hell for some time. And, you know, I'm sure you, are, you, you relate to this. Like, you, it's really, you can edit a book for years and, and not be done because it's just an infinite process. But what's happening for me is that I realize that, you know, that the end of the year is coming and I will be sad if I didn't get this, this thing that I intended to finish in, like, around before June, I think. It's already December. And I would be extra sad if I didn't get it done this year. So I have to get it done before the end of the year. And that's kind of self-invented, self-inflicted deadline of sorts. But like, if I didn't do that, then I would, I could just keep editing indefinitely and never publishing. And I think that would be a mistake. And so, and I, I've, I've encountered a lot of people who kind of fall into these traps, which is, you know, very often it's like, this, I think the easiest version of this trap for, for especially for thoughtful people is to think that they don't have enough information and so they need more information and so you can just research you can do more and more research until until indefinitely basically right um, you know you want to start getting fitter or, or you want to start um, learning to draw and then you start you know, watching videos on, on how to draw and then you start reading about theory. But like, it's important if you want to get better at drawing or playing music or whatever it is, that you do the thing. And the thing that you're doing when you're first doing it, it's not going to be nice. It's going to be, you know, crappy and messy and full of mistakes and errors. And that's the part I think that a lot of people are averse to. And it's, I think it's not, I don't even think it's like a natural aversion. I think people have been conditioned to have an extra bad aversion to these things because of like their experiences in school and just the sense of like grading and like not wanting to do anything that has a bad grade, not wanting to do anything that looks bad or sounds bad. But um, yeah, you know, any, anything that's worth doing or anything that you want to get good at, you have to start by being bad at it. I think there's this quote that's like, you know, the master has failed more times than the novice has tried, right? That sort of thing. And so, yeah, I think it's it's important to remind yourself of why you're doing what you want to, why you're doing the thing and like what you're trying to achieve and, and what the, the goal is. And I think also to be to be compassionate about it, I think there's a, there's a courage element to it. I think, and people don't like to admit weakness or fear because it you know don't, people don't like to admit fear because it seems weak and you know I'll, I'll go ahead and say it like part of the reason i'm stuck in editing hell is because there's a part of me that's afraid that if i miss something out or if i don't get it perfect then you know someone's gonna read the book and be like oh my god this this how how did he omit this thing or, or why is this part so this part repeats the other thing that that part says you know there's all these possible criticisms that would wound my feelings and so it's it's very easy to 
allow the part of my brain or the part of my being that's worried about pain to to try and and um, take steps to mitigate that pain. And you could even say that, you know, to some degree, maybe at some subconscious level, there's a part of me that's basically delaying and procrastinating to avoid the pain of being of facing criticism. And, you know, when I'm having a conversation about it with somebody, it becomes more obviously kind of silly. I'm like, of course, of course, there's going to be criticism. Like, I should just accept it in advance and be okay with it and and decide that, you know, that's the price I'm willing to pay to to publish work that I think is meaningful and I want to share with people. But in in the moment of doing the work in isolation, when it's quiet and, and you're kind of by yourself in your head, it's easy to kind of... Uh, yeah, let your fears and worries kind of prevent you from taking the next step that is potentially painful. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I I can uh, I I definitely in mean, one one ironic way in which I've noticed myself doing that is that I read a lot of books and watch a lot of YouTube videos about how to be more productive. <laughs> and I realize that this activity in itself is an, it has become completely unproductive and counterproductive. Um, right. <laughs> instead of actually becoming more productive, it's easier to just try to amass more and more tips on it. Um, right. And this may seem like slightly the opposite thing, but you talk a lot about making copious notes. Um, and in yeah. fact, a lot of things you say are very similar to things that I recently read um, in a book, which I'm just looking on my Kindle now to find the title. I don't recommend reading this book, actually, like many, <laughs> your book I recommend reading, but this one I don't, because like many books of, of, this, of its kind, it has one big idea, and the idea is great. great um, and once you've read the introduction, you can just read the introduction conclusion and skip the rest of the book, which is just endless reiterations and examples of how the idea is good. Oh yeah, right. it's called How to Take Smart Notes. Um, hmm. And the book is by, I, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, but Sunke Ahrens. Um, right. Despite the title of, I'll put the book in the show notes. Despite the title, the book never actually tells you how to take smart notes. It <laughs> only tells you why to take, why you should take them. And right. his basis, basic thesis, which I think is very similar to a lot of things you say, is that whenever you have an idea, you should note it down. And yeah. when you're reading or watching something and something occurs to you as an idea, you should note it down. And not only that, but whenever possible, you should note down how it fits in with other ideas you've had. Yes. So make it part of your own thinking. So when you're reading a book, for example, he says, don't just underline or make notes in the margin, but make notes in a separate notebook or in a document on your computer. And right. then later, review those notes and try to see where they fit in with other notes you've made. So try to thematize. And he keeps promising that he'll tell you how to more easily do that, but he actually never does tell you how to do it. <laughs> um, 
At one point, he plugged some software, but that software, I looked it up and it's no longer available. Um, the book is quite old. But the idea which he plugs in a much more uh, re- repetitious way than, than you do, um, but you have some similar ideas about note-taking. Could you say more yeah. about that? Right. I mean, I, I have sympathy for the author because I'm sure <laughs> that, uh, you know, too. again, he probably, <laughs> who knows, right? Like the process of writing a book, it could have been, he might have kept it fairly kind of spartan and simple. And then his, maybe his editors or his publishers were like, oh, we need to put more stuff in it. So, so I don't know. But um, yeah, I think, and I think the thing about smart notes is that in, so in my experience, the only way to get better at it is to just keep doing it. And then you keep doing it until you get frustrated with the imperfections and the failures of your system. So like, um, you know, one of the things about a good note-taking system is that it should have good indexing. And by indexing, I mean a way of referencing from one note to another note or, you know, so how I do this now is that I have like a, a content page on like the first or second page of my notebooks. I think I even have some notebooks where like some of my older notebooks that are half filled, my content page is like somewhere in the middle. And then like on the front page, I'm like content page is on page 46 or whatever. And then I have, I number all my pages and I didn't pick this up from uh, a specific like guide or, well, I do think I watched a video about bullet journaling. And I think in that video, they said that they, they demonstrate how you should number your pages. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's that's pretty smart. I should do that. You know, then, I have uh, never thought of numbering my pages. Isn't that, isn't that crazy? <laughs> it's funny. Yeah, it's... That, it's, that uh, makes it so much simpler. <laughs> and, then, and then, yeah, so then you can do like, um, like the equivalent of an internet hypertext link. Like, uh, if you want to reference an idea from another page, you can just, you know, write down, like, bracket page 46, and then you can go back and turn the pages and look at it. It's, it's quite fun. Once you, once you start numbering your pages and you start cross-referencing ideas across pages, it, it, it adds this additional, um, I, I want to say dimensionality, but I don't know if that means anything to anybody. It, it, just, it just makes it feel more... Um, it feels it feels smarter in a sense. It feels kind of less. I, I guess before I numbered my pages and titled my pages and added dates, which are all things that I thought were kind of tedious and superfluous. But like once I once it became necessary to add those things, it just made it so much easier for me to go through my notes and find what I'm looking for, as opposed to kind of flipping through all the pages until I found something that that I can't remember. And there are all these little things that I start to add, like um, you know, I start to add stars next to um, the more important or interesting pages on my content page. And the thing is, these are all things that I don't know if if it would have been helpful to me to have learned all of these things in advance, I don't know if I would have listened. I don't know if it would have helped me. It's really one of those things where only by doing it imperfectly and then finding myself frustrated with like, oh, I can't find the page. And I'm like, oh yeah, I should try <laughs> page numbering. And um, yeah, I, I do think there is there is value in you know, this, this gets kind of profound as well. Like there's value in your frustrations because, and, and so I'm, I've never been a fan of like uh, sitting down through like a multiple hour 
like course like on on how to use a piece of software so recently i've started making youtube videos and there are all these resources that are like oh here learn how to use iMovie or learn how to use final pro or whatever software and then it's like a multi-hour video where they walk you through all of the tools and i'm like ah, oh, I, I don't have the patience for that and i am not interested in developing like a a very a comprehensive top-down understanding of of the tools I'm, I'm more interested in you know you try to do what whatever it is that you want to do and then when you are f- you fall short in some way then you look up the solution to that specific problem and then you solve that and then now that 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 specific feature of the tool or the product or whatever it becomes associated with you in your mind with the experience of frustration that you had so it it it's a very clever way of using your emotions to to kind of tie concepts together and it i find it much more uh you know it's it's very funny to me when people ask me things like how do you have such a good memory for all your tweets and stuff because i have a horrible memory for like day to day like I can't remember things that that I studied and things that I've like that sort of thing, but I I do find that um, instances of frustration or instances of excitement, like anything to do with emotions, I find that it's generally um, you, like you remember those things. Like you know, I can remember like arguments I've had with people <laughs> from from years ago. Sometimes like I, I won't remember it off the top of my head, but like. If I encounter something new, I might remember, oh, I argued with this person about this like years ago. And so that's actually a very helpful kind of like a trigger. It's like a, so I take notes in my private notes of like arguments that I've had with people, not not to try and win arguments or to try and, um, you know, prove people wrong or anything like that. But it's just, it's like what um, the note, taking guy says right like you just if you have if you feel something and you if a thought arises and it's a strong thought like there's some there's something useful there that you may not know what the use of it is yet and i remember when i was younger i guess um i remember being frustrated that like when i encountered something and it was like like i'm talking to somebody and they say something and I remember that, oh, I once had this exact conversation with a friend. They had a really smart thing to say about it. And I remember it was really smart, but I can't remember what they said. And I'm like, shit, I should I should write it down the next time. The next time somebody says something that it, it makes me go, oh, wow, that's smart. I should write it down so that the next time I have that conversation with somebody else, I can reference the previous thing. And that's basically what I've been doing on Twitter. And I do it often enough that now people seem to think that Oh, wow. people say things like, oh, wow, Visa is so, I don't know, insert positive adjective here. But it's really just me being, I, I wasn't like born or raised to be meticulous. It was really just me being frustrated all the time and trying to not be frustrated. And then uh, in trying to solve my own problem, I guess I put together something that turns out to have uh, like a generalized usage. And actually, now that I'm saying this, a, a, a thought just occurred to me that I don't think I've said to anybody before, which is that, you know, it, this connects directly with um, like my social skills, which I developed in part really because I was upset and frustrated with being like a bit of a social failure when I was even younger. Like, you know, that message board where people are making fun of me. Like, it's it's really funny how um, 
potent and powerful these kind of experiences can be if you let them. And mm. yeah, you know, I, I had a bad experience and I wanted to not have that bad experience again. And that was sufficiently motivating for me that I could come back to it over and over again and it would re-energize me. Even now, if I think about it a bit, I can kind of get myself motivated a little bit. Um, yeah, and, and this is coming from someone who I would say I have I have pretty, I'm a very scatterbrained person. I struggle to kind of stay motivated and stay focused and stuff like that because I'm always distracted by the next thing. But so, yeah, it it my notes help me kind of uh they 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 are, I think I describe them sometimes as like scaffolding they are like this 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 grid of sorts that that uh it's overlaid on top of my my intellectual life I guess or my just the, the things that I care about and so when I'm lost or confused I can always kind of turn to my notes and look for things that are related or relevant and and my twitter effectively functions as a giant kind of a note matrix so I can always search my own Twitter to look for things that I said in the past. And sometimes, and I've written so much that I can't remember what I've written. So it's it's almost exciting and fun to encounter old thoughts that feel fresh and new again. Yeah, that's, that's my process. Yeah, um, I think, so I, um, I can very much relate to that. And two related things that, that, help me, I think, or two related reasons why um, I endorse note-taking. I was going to say I do a lot of note-taking, but unfortunately, (laughs) I do not do as much note-taking as I would like to, but I certainly advocate it. Mm -hmm. And one is that it makes the writing process much easier. So So much easier. Yeah, yeah, a lot of people... um, I think, think of researching and writing as two completely separate activities. First, you're right. reading, thinking, musing, and then you sit down and write, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. But I think that it's much easier to, as you're reading, if a thought comes to you, if you're able to put it into full sentences, which you may not be, if you're not, then you just, you know, just write a bullet point or something. But very often, you'll find that a couple of sentences will just come to you as you're reading that express your thoughts. Write those two sentences down. And um, don't, if you're taking, if you're writing a quotation from a book out, for example, or underlining it, don't just underline the quotation, but also just write something about why that quotation is important to you, how it fits in with what you're thinking about. Yes. I mean, you don't have to do this absolutely every time, um, if you try to make yourself do it every time, you'll end up, you know, not wanting to take any notes. This it needs to be an easy process, but just yeah. don't stop yourself from writing down those things that are in your head as you are looking at the quotation. Something in your head will be saying, "Ooh, this relates to X and Y." Write yes. that shit down, um, and then when you, then when I come to write. If I'm writing a longer piece, if I'm writing a kind of a a ranty political essay, like I some of those that I've published in Ario magazine, I haven't done as much of that writing recently because I'm working on a new book, so I'm kind of keeping my writing chops mostly for that. But um, when I'm writing a ranty political essay, I don't usually need to do that because 
all the thoughts are already uppermost in my mind and I'm usually right. very angry about them. <laughs> and so I'm writing <laughs> yeah. an essay to express that. Um, yeah. But for longer writing, for chapter length or book length or even long read essay length writing, it's crucial to me to not start from zero. The first thing yeah. I do is I go to my notes and quotations. I read them all through and see what themes are emerging. And then I kind of arrange them in groups according to their themes. And then within each group, I like arrange them in order. I try to work mm -hmm. out what's the logical order that these thoughts go in. And then when I sit down to write, I find that 80% of it is already written. All I've got yes. to do is add some connecting sentences. Yeah. Um, and then right at the end, I go back and write the introduction. I write the introduction right. last when I know what is going to happen in the rest of the piece. So I highly recommend that to anybody who struggles with writing, which must be surely 98% of people. I mean, even many professional writers have told me they struggle with writing. Writing is oh, fucking yeah. hard. I, um, love, I love the class of quotes that's like, you know, writing is a thing. No, a writer is someone for whom writing is harder than other people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it sounds it sounds ridiculous, but but it makes sense if you, if you think about it in terms of like uh, of of having very high standards of yourself. So it's like you're you're really pushing yourself to, to to do things with the medium that you couldn't do before, and so you're always challenged. The the same way, like you know, a a, a athletic like a professional sprinter it's going to be more tired all the time from sprinting than a person who isn't a sprinter because they're, they're constantly pushing themselves. Yeah, I really liked, I mean, that relates to something you said about your relationship with your um, wife. Uh, mm -hmm. So advice that you oh, gave yeah. for marriage, you said, yeah. um, what people need to realize is that your husband or wife will be the person who most frustrates, disappoints and annoys you. And yes. you said, uh, and this was just such a beautiful illustration of the kind of nerdy ways, and I want to finish with <laughs> nerdiness quite soon, but yes. the kind yeah. of nerdy ways in which your brain works. Because yeah. you said, imagine that you're, this is true, even if your husband or wife is 10 times less annoying than anybody else you know. Right. Um, yeah. So you said, if my wife annoys me 1% of the time and other people annoy me 10% of the time, I'm still going to spend much more time annoyed by my wife than by anyone else because I spend more than 10 times as much time with my wife. So you said, it's a question of base rates. I thought that was just an yeah. absolutely extraordinarily yeah. In, uh, nerdy way of putting it yeah, and I mean that as a compliment of course yeah <laughs> yes. and it's true right it's just, just it's it's math it's funny people I, I do think that literally we know that people are bad at statistics like even statisticians are, are known to be bad at statistics and uh, like in in practical everyday life and so one of the tragedies of life is that you know isn't this a crazy thought like think about it like what if divorce rates exist to some degree because of the systematic misunderstanding people have about base rates, right? Which is that, which is that, again, I mean, think about it. it the, 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 the fact, the fact, 
Ah, the fact of divorce is such a mindfuck. If you just sit down and think about it, as a species, like we have billions of people, hundreds of millions of people who get married. And presumably, you want to marry the person that you love the most or the person that, you know, has just the decision to get married is something that you make with someone that you really, you love, you admire, you respect. Like in some way, you think at at the altar, you think to yourself and to each other, this is the person that I love. This is the a wonderful person that I want to spend the rest of my life with. And it's so often the case that, uh, you know, for a sizable percentage of people, a few years later, their spouse now becomes like their number one enemy in life. Like a lot of people are like my ex-wife, my ex-husband. It's like, you know, it's just they're a terrible person and, and I hate them and they hate me. And it's just, it's very tragic and sad. But it's also like, you know, nobody, and part of that is that when you are sufficiently intimate with someone in such a close proximity, they can hurt you in ways that nobody else can because they are so up in your business, right? So you're so intertwined in your lives. Like nobody, you know, I think there's a quote that's something like, if you want an enemy, choose a friend. They know where to stab, something like that. And uh, (laughs) yeah, yeah. But what if so? Apart from those like extreme cases where the person's spouse turns out to be you know abusive or dysfunctional, like what if people kind of misrepresent their own frustration to themselves and they just think, ah, I'm so annoyed at my spouse all the time. This shouldn't be the case. I'm not happy. And and then that kind of you know once once you have that hypothesis, you start looking for evidence to confirm it, and then it kind of spirals, and you're like, you know, is it? And and then there are all these fairy tale stories, and you see all these highlight reels of everyone else's happy marriages on Instagram or whatever. And it's just, I think it's there is this thing where people do, I think, experience upsetting experiences, experience frustration, pain, all of those things. And they then think, my wife is causing me more misery than anybody else. I should, we should get divorced. Like, like some, some people surely think that. And that is, is like, it's just wrong thinking, you know, at some, at some degree. I'm, I'm not saying that every marriage that fails necessarily fails that way. Obviously not. But like, it's definitely a component for some people. And that's like, wow, like when you think about it, that's that's one of the most um, dramatic and and kind of upsetting or, or unfortunate ways that kind of uh, our perception, the biases in perception kind of screw us over. And so it's very important work to try and help people contextualize their experiences, right? So it's not that being frustrated is it's okay to be frustrated or it's good to be frustrated, but you do want to contextualize your experiences and think about, you know, is is my spouse really a horrible person or is it just that I am inclined to believe this because we spend so much time together? That, that kind of thing. Mm, yeah, yeah. So um, I want to move on um, to kind of begin to draw this podcast to a close, even though I could talk yes. to you for many hours. I know it's sure. late there in Singapore. Um, mm-hmm. And... Perhaps to end, we could talk a little bit about um, what you think it means to be a nerd. What is the nerdy approach to life and how does it differ from other approaches? Right. So I'm, I'm very happy with my latest formulation, which is that the simplest way I can put it is that a nerd, in my definition, is a person who allows their curiosity to steer their ship. 
you know, who who allow who navigates by curiosity. And, you know, a lot of people a lot of people are curious and and unfortunate and it's a kind of distressing to me how many people are not. But like even even amongst people who possess curiosity, and a lot of people possess curiosity, but to allow curiosity to direct your behavior, I think that is that that crosses a threshold that not everybody crosses. And I think there's a lot of beauty in the world that has been created by people who allowed their curiosity to drive, to direct, right? So whether it's, you know, like scientific curiosity leads to innovation, artistic curiosity leads to, you know, artistic innovation and and beautiful works. And it's just fun. It's really, I think, um, you know, the... Life is full of mysteries that we may never solve, but like the 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 pursuit of of you know the, the the sense of adventure you get when you have a curiosity and you don't know the answer and you're gonna go looking and you're gonna ask questions and you're gonna find you know it's like you might have a big question that that has many layers to it and then you try and find smaller questions that that answer parts of the bigger question and then you might decide that oh actually what i was trying to figure out my my frame was wrong or my perspective was wrong i got to change my perspective and then you know you got to start asking different questions i think that pursuit is is a very heady very exciting um way to live i think it's it's infectious even i think it's part of it's uh when when people see somebody else who is directed by their curiosity in a very natural and um, fundamental sense i think there is this childlike playfulness that comes out and you know um like ego takes a back seat and which is why it's it's so it's so i I, i'm i'm tooting my own horn here but i'm really i was really excited when the friendly ambitious nerd formulation came together for me because it's really all all three aspects kind of um play off each other very nicely so it's like the 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 things about curiosity that that are good and and healthy and uh there there are also you know you can be curious in a in a in a way that is i don't want to say dangerous but people do believe there are people who believe that there are like bad questions and and you know there are there Inf- are bad faith information questions. yeah information hazards right as it's often yeah. known yeah and and so you know I uh, I don't think people dampen their curiosity as deliberately as they dampen their ambition, but it is a thing that happens. I think people at some point they learn or they are taught that you shouldn't ask too many questions because you'll get in trouble for it or you'll be perceived as a troublemaker, or you know like um it will it might seem like you are trying to cause. I'm repeating myself, but yeah, and um. I do think it's very valuable to kind of cultivate um, uh, a reputation for yourself, or, or just you know to to be seen as someone who is curious. I think is a very valuable asset for both for the individual and for for the people around them, because we all need um, you know somebody to ask good faith questions, and and uh, I'm reminded. You know, um, very often the the problem in a lot of and there there are multiple stories about this sort of thing. This idea that you could have some outsider, 
and I think very often the way that this trope is discussed in storytelling is that you have a child and you know every child is a cultural outsider to some degree they haven't yet learned all the you know what the taboos and all the the kind of bad poisoned wells and all of those things right so the 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 cute and also very useful thing about the youth is that they haven't yet been poisoned in a sense with cynicism and and like just um painful experience is that they can ask very innocent naive questions that can uh, can kind of energize people you know i was i was recently re i was recently watching um cobra kai which is the tv show that is a follow-up to the karate kid movie so the karate kid movie was like before i was born it was like in 1984 or something like that or 86 and you know it's the karate kid movie is about two young guys well it's, it's about a bunch of things but you know at the core conflict is you have two guys from different karate schools and they have a fight and, you know, it's not just about the fight, but it's their philosophies and whatnot. And one guy wins, one guy loses and and that's the end of the story. Hero wins, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, now it's almost 30 years later, 20 something years later and there's this sequel and you see that the guy who lost the fight, he's become like this really despondent, washed up, frustrated, world weary guy who's kind of you know he's he's having difficulty paying the bills and his job sucks and he's he's alone and all those things and then he gets this naive earnest neighbor this young guy young kid and the kid's like can you teach me karate and he's like nah you know it's it's, the, it's all bullshit whatever whatever but like eventually the the young kid's earnestness i think kind of um wins him over and you can see the transformation that happens to Johnny. That's the name of the, the character. Is it, is it Johnny? Whatever. The Cobra Kai instructor, right? Um, he he cleans up his act. You know, he was he was like drinking and 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 just being a bum, sort of, you know, unshaven and, and messy. And like when he encountered this this eager, earnest, curious young guy who wanted to learn karate, like in that moment, you know, he was kind of, um, I guess he was reminded of what he loved about the sport and, and the art of it. And, and you know, in his own head, in his own narrative of himself, he would have thought of himself as, as some guy who's like washed up and a failure and all those things. But he could see that through the eyes of this young idealistic kid, and, you know, you might say that, ah, he's just a kid. He doesn't know anything. But, like, you don't want to disappoint the child. You don't want to be the one to disappoint the child. And so he feels compelled to... I mean, I'm projecting my interpretation of the narrative here. But, like, you, that, that caveat aside, uh, you know, you don't want to disappoint the kid. And you you want to kind of support the kid where you can. And in that process, he cleans up his act and he becomes a better version of himself. So effectively what happened was that that earnest, young, curious kid has, you know, um, re-energized this grumpy older guy, right? And I think that's a great metaphor for what sincere, earnest curiosity can do, you know? And uh, another story I often tell people is that it doesn't necessarily need to be the younger person who's curious. I remember when I first started work at my last company, um, my ex-boss, he gave me this gift. He was really of, of his curiosity, which is that he was genuinely 
curious to understand um, my my kind of how how I was doing. Like he wanted to understand, you know, if let's say I didn't get something done on time, if I missed a deadline, he would ask me why I missed it. And then I would start self-flagellating. I would like perform contrition, right? I'd be like, oh, you know, I'm I'm so sorry. I, I, I missed the thing because I wasn't paying attention because I, I had stuff on my mind. And then he's like, no, 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 sure. Like, I don't need you to be sorry. I'm just curious to understand like what exactly happened so that we can not so is there any way i can help you like is there anything we can do to make sure that this doesn't happen again and that was such a breath of fresh air for me like it was unlike anything i had ever experienced with my family and with my teachers and just it it his curiosity about my condition i mean like my life situation like it was so new to me that he his curiosity about me made me freshly curious about myself and it made me kind of want to be nerdy about like where previously my my relationship with my own you know um so-called lack of discipline or my all those things my, my relationship there was with myself there was one that was very um it was kind of dark it was kind of um self uh, almost self-abusive i would say like i was just beating myself up all the time about ah oh, you fucking can't do anything you're always late you're always screwing shit up what's wrong with you but even then even then when i said to myself what's wrong with you you know i, I said it with the voice it wasn't me saying it to me you know it was me using like my teachers and my parents words in their in my voice but their words you know in that kind of their tone and i had inherited that from them and my my ex boss he taught me to be genuinely curious about myself in a non-judgmental way because that's how he was towards me and i and i i learned from him to be that way towards myself and it's so funny how once i was able to kind of step back and and drop some of the emotional frustration and 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 burdenness around that stuff i was able to be curious about like yeah actually why 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 am i kind of being late about this like what what things could i introduce to try and like change? i started to see it almost like a video game like what i think one of those this is video game i used to play as a kid which is like a like there's a pipe and then there's the the pipe is going to start spilling out water or some liquid and you're supposed to build the pipe and and make the pipe go into the into the the whatever it's like connecting from points a to z and and you gotta like redirect the flow of the thing until you get it right and i started to see it as like a game like oh how do i redirect my attention or how do i redirect my my energy and then i i i got better at it and i got more productive and effective as an individual and that experience really i think kind of radicalized me to some degree i think it it made me realize that if you can have that kind of curious earnest curious energy it's just it's so powerful it's uh it it makes people feel at ease if you can do it in a non-judgmental way and once you've helped somebody kind of uh, make a couple of adjustments i, I don't want to say changes because it's not really about going around changing other people's lives but like uh you know it's just when you introduce that sort of curiosity that nerdiness um it invites people to play again, I think, and to be playful in a experimental way. 
And yeah, I, I to me, it's become practically self-evident that this is the way to live in a sense, right? Like to, to make friends and to, to be curious and to ask questions. And because there's, there's so many unanswered questions everywhere and there's so much value that gets created when we find out the answers to questions that are troubling us. I mean, so we all have problems, right? And uh, the, the thing is, problems problems are solvable like most of them like you you may not be able to you know you can't alter the laws of physics or whatever but like you can redirect things around things and you know if you don't have enough energy that's that's i mean i, I don't want to be too kind of um i don't wanna imply that everything is completely solvable in some grandiose sense but you know there's there's usually something you can do to try and make things better in some way you can alleviate some pain some frustration and yeah, so, and sometimes even just the process of let's geek out about something and figure stuff out, you know, let's, let's go exploring like uh, that, that kind of energy, I think like inhabiting that, that mental space can be a, a solve in of itself. It can be a relief to, to kind of get out of like this judgmental space where what am I doing wrong or what's, why, why is you know, kind of fixate, being fixated on on whatever is your existing set of worries and concerns and kind of exploring your curiosity, that can so often lead to interesting solutions. But, but it shouldn't be about the solutions, you know. It's like if you, if you go into it trying to find solutions, I think your subconscious will know that you've turned it into like a job or a task. And then that I find that when I do that, then like um, the part of my subconscious that wants to be playful doesn't show up. So it's like you really have to be genuinely playful in your curiosity to to be a nerd, right? You can't really you can't really be a a, a nerd on demand in a constrained and directed way. It's really about like letting following your nose and like like looking around and and letting yourself ask like being surprised by things like what what's surprising, what's strange, what's weird, what. What's curious, you know? And yeah, I, I, I'm a huge advocate for um, being curious and encouraging the curiosity of others. Thank you so much, Visa Khan. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you today. Um, mm-hmm. Thank you for coming Likewise. on. Thank you for having me. And have a wonderful week, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Two for Tea. Your patronage helps to keep this podcast alive and flourishing. Your support means the world to me. Stay well, stay happy, and have a wonderful week.